Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would awaken in us today a hunger for your presence, that we may see you and your goodness and your beauty. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you all. Good morning to you online as well. Uh, we continue today our journey through this Practices of Love series. If you were with us in person or online last week, you'll recall we discussed meditation and the way in which meditation means we turn our minds in specific directions. We say our minds, we almost lead them by the hand, we said. You lead your mind by the hand and say, uh, pay attention to this. Go look at this. And um, in our readings today, we are, in a sense, told what we're meant to pay attention to. Uh, we probably have a few things on our minds today, uh, in addition to what we've just read. Uh, today is also uh, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. One of those days, there's a few like this in the Christian year, where the, <laughs> the historic Feast of St. Valentine and the cultural expression that we know today could not have a wider chasm. Uh, there's several like this. Uh, Christmas with St. Nicholas, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, St. Patrick knew, knew nothing of green beer. Um, St. Valentine is similar. St. Valentine was a third century martyr for the Christian faith who was beheaded um, in a prison and uh, was imprisoned because when Christians were persecuted, he was in secret marrying young couples because the church believes in and loves marriage. And so he would marry them in secret, word got out, and he was imprisoned. And while in prison, the Lord healed the jailer's child through his intercessions. And so the story goes, he, as he was being led to his execution, left a note for this healed child that he signed your Valentine. And so uh, a bit of legend probably mixed in with the history there, but I like that story much more than like the Smarties with, you know, be mine on it or whatever it may be. So not to ruin your Valentine's Day, but um, maybe to redeem it somewhat. But uh, today is also more significantly the last Sunday before Lent begins. And in the Western church, that Sunday is known as Transfiguration Sunday. So we have the Feast of the Transfiguration, um, and this is not that, but it's closely linked to it. And so you may have noticed that, this kind of wild reading from the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha uh, in the Second Corinthians reading, the lifting of this veil, and then the story of the Transfiguration. And uh, I say that to say... Um, if we're leading our minds, and not just our minds, but our whole being in a certain direction, the transfiguration helps us see where we're meant to be leading our lives, which is to behold God. The invitation before us is that we may behold God. That's what the transfiguration shows us. Mark 9 says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. So all these practices we've been discussing that we still have many more to discuss, all of them, I think, find their fulfillment in this transfiguration story because fundamentally we do these things, we order our lives in specific ways so we can see Jesus Christ, for him to be transfigured before us. Or as St. Paul put it in our 2 Corinthians reading, he says uh, that we long to have the veil lifted, that the uncreated light of God would shine in our hearts, as he says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So we're gonna talk about Lent a bit today. We don't have a Northside Ash Wednesday service, and so I'm gonna kind of like combine that into today a little bit as well. But this is really the heart of Lent. The heart of Lent is that we create room in our lives through certain practices so we align ourselves in such a way that we could see the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's kind of this vertical dimension to our life with God. And yet, as we've talked about for about a month now, um, there's this horizontal reality as well. This book keeps pushing us outwards towards our neighbor. And what's interesting, as I've mentioned, today is known as Transfiguration Sunday in the West. Um, The Christian church uh, largely divided along whether you spoke Latin or Greek. And so all the Christians who spoke Greek to this day The last Sunday before Lent is not known as Transfiguration Sunday, but it's called Forgiveness Sunday. It's very interesting to me. It's like the two of these help us hold all of this together because Forgiveness Sunday in the Greek-speaking church is this reminder that Lent begins with an acknowledgement that we don't love each other how we should, that we begin Lent by saying, actually, I need your forgiveness because I failed to love you as Jesus invites me to love you. And so um, that we, instead of showing the selfless love of Christ, the sacrificial generosity, we hoard from one another. We fail to love. And so we need to be reconciled. We need to ask forgiveness. And somehow that vertical beholding the life of God, beholding Jesus in his transfiguration and the forgiveness you and I need to extend and receive because of our brokenness, those all are meant to be held together. And I think maybe uh, the way those dual emphases uh, actually um, help us see that, they help us to hold these together. And I want us to hold that together as well as we talk today about fasting, because Lent is upon us, and yet this is also uh, the theme of our chapter this week. You may have read ahead and saw this, uh, and if not, if today's kind of an introduction to you, if you've been working through this book, uh, this week we talk about fasting and feasting, fasting and feasting, or as Bennett subtitles this chapter, he says, uh, this is my tummy which I will curb for you. Uh, which made me chuckle. This is my tummy, which I will curb for you. Here's the thing. This is a really important chapter. If you've kind of checked out from this book up until this point, read this chapter. Because especially as we dive into Lent, I love how these are timed in this specific way. As we enter into Lent this week, we will talk about and live into fasting. And eating is essential to the Christian life because it's essential to the human life. Last week, we talked about meditation. Some of you would have maybe instantly been like, ah, oh, that's not for me. I don't, I don't do meditation. Um, even if you're not a foodie, most of us, I, I think, would acknowledge um, food is kind of for you. <laughs> like, food is for everyone. Go a few weeks without eating and see how that works out for you. Um, it is essential to life. Um, we can't say that food is uh, an optional thing we pick up or take or, or let go of. Therefore, the way we engage it really matters. None of us can say you can go without food. Some people try. Uh, A dear friend of mine, uh, one of their former roommates moved to India and became a breathologist. You ever heard of breathology? Hadn't either. Um, And it's interesting. They they basically found this community in India and decided that food is is like a curse. And so uh, all you need is breath to live um, and try and live without food as much as you can. And I could really go down a rabbit trail with that, uh, but I'm going to resist and just say, unless you self-identify as a breathologist, food is an essential part of your life. And therefore, we need to actually put it out in our hands and say, how do I engage food? 
Do I have redemptive and healthy habits surrounding what I consume, or might there be room there for growth? Um, do I actually even see the way that the things I consume are tied to my ability to see God and to love my neighbor? That's what I want us to take a, a few minutes to do today. Um, this is a bit of an ongoing theme. Each week, I think in one way or another, we can point to this. Um, our relationship with food is true of many things in our life, which is primarily, almost overwhelmingly so, it is focused right here on ourselves. How does this food satisfy me? I mean, quite literally, it, how does it sustain me? And yet we go from basic nutrition into this kind of um, upside-down, broken relationship where it is entirely self-absorbed. And I can tell you how that worked its way out in my life. About 10, 11 years ago, I was diagnosed with celiac disease, um, which means I can't eat gluten. I was gluten-free way before it was cool, and will be long after that fad passes. Um, and so it was interesting, for the about a two-week window before I was getting a final test to determine this, they said you have to have gluten in your system to kind of make sure that uh, the test works. And so I ate carbs and bread like an asteroid was headed to Earth. <laughs> and it was the end of the world as we knew it, and so I just needed to, to you know, splurge. And when I was diagnosed, I then spent weeks and weeks of my life combing the internet looking for gluten-free versions of every food, even foods I'd never made before. Like all of a sudden I had to make you know, homemade gluten-free Oreos <laughs> or donuts or you know, croissants, whatever it may be. Um, it's like the epitome of self-indulgent eating. This wasn't, uh, how do I find a new way to, to sustain healthy living or nutrition uh, so I don't get sick and die? Uh, no, it, it was purely indulgent and likely the details of your life are quite different. Uh, maybe not, but uh, likely that looks very different in your life, and yet you can easily think of situations or seasons of life in which your relationship to what you consume was upside down, and it was this kind of uh, self-absorbed type of consuming. And so I think we all need to reassess this. And it's not just what we consume, but it's also the, the, the nature of food itself. I think Bennett does a really good job in this chapter pointing this out, because again, he's pushing us out. He's pushing us in horizontal ways. And so he says, do we actually think about the thousands of hands, literally, that were involved in you and I having chips and queso on our table at night? Or the bowl of cereal that you eat for breakfast, the way in which that has impacted entire communities and societies, and we largely do not think twice about that. And yet, maybe we should. I remember buying um, beef a couple years ago from the store and trying to be a good uh, urban citizen and trying to buy grass-fed uh, organic beef, and I got it off. And, and yet, noticed that on the front it said, product of United States, Australia, and Uruguay. So this like, little packet of ground beef was tri-continental beef. You know, it, it has gone around the world and back. And who knows, again, how many hundreds and thousands of hands were involved in that little uh, thing I chose to consume. Uh, it reminded me, and should remind all of us, that we are not as isolated as we think. And the simple decisions we make, the daily deeds that we discipline, are actually tied to our neighbor in more ways than we maybe care to admit. And so if we overconsume, it doesn't just affect us. In a sense, we're hoarding, literally hoarding food that maybe could feed others, or we do this in other ways. We hoard our time, we hoard our resources, starving people from being able to feast on the warmth of community. And so the invitation today 
uh, in this chapter, especially as we head into Lent, is to renew the way we eat. And I'm gonna kind of land it there and actually give us some practical nuts and bolts on how you might actually do this because Lent begins on Wednesday. And I feel like for most of us, even if you grew up and Lent was like a key part of your life, uh, most of us don't really know how to, to do Lent. Like you know it's starting and you know you probably should give up something. It's supposed to hurt a little bit. Um, you, should, you should do something for Lent. You get around to it about three weeks into Lent and then you do it for a few days and then Easter's here and you're like, ah, next year. Next year is gonna be my year. <laughs> um, let's, let's not do that. What if we, we are proactive now even with a few days before it begins um, let's begin uh, and, and have a meaningful Lent this year. So Lent begins on Wednesday. Wednesday is known as Ash Wednesday. Uh, it is a service in which you're reminded of your mortality and yet the goodness and hope we have in Christ. Uh, we are not having one here. The West Side is hosting a drive-through Ash Wednesday service. Uh, if you're on our email list, the details of that were in your inbox this morning. Um, but if you want to drive through on Wednesday, in the West Side parking lot, you can do so at 7.30 a.m., 12.30 p.m., or 5.30 p.m. You don't need to sign up. You can just go and drive through. Um, it's a way to, to mark the beginning of something. I think it's good to mark a season and say, we're going to um, enter into this together. And so Ash Wednesday marks this, but then we actually have to live it out. Give me just two or three minutes on this, and then we'll, we'll move on. But in Lent... Um, there are three traditional practices, three things we focus on, most of them drawn from Matthew 6, almsgiving or, or service, sacrificial giving to the poor, uh, prayer and fasting, almsgiving, prayer and fasting. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, whenever you give alms, whenever you pray, and whenever you fast, Jesus expected his followers to do those three things. Here's the thing about fasting. Most, most of us don't like the idea of fasting. It sounds like a terrible thing to do. Like, why would I, why would I want to fast? How is that in any way good? Um, here's the beautiful thing about fasting. Fasting helps us feel hungry again. When we say no to things, it teaches us to feel hungry. And hunger is actually a very important part of Christian growth. If you're not hungry, you won't grow. You won't move. You won't do anything. Think about like um, Animal Planet or, uh, you, you know, all of the, there's like a dozen various, you know, variations on, um, you know, like nature documentaries, Planet Earth, you know, that sort of thing. Every one of them always has the scene where the lion's hunting the gazelle. And eventually the lion gets the gazelle and feasts on this gazelle. And then they like show the lion just lounging out in the sun for like two weeks, <laughs> right? They don't move. They just sit there stuffed to the brim. We can perpetually live our lives like a stuffed lion. And yet what's interesting is until the lion gets the gazelle, they're nimble, they're hungry, they're motivated, they're on the prowl. And in some ways, Lent is kind of like creating that hunger so that we actually move it in a certain direction. So we actually go hunting for something. And I think it's really important because in our culture, we, we are always filled to the brim. And so we rarely actually live intentionally with hunger. If we feel hunger, we feel like we immediately need to satisfy it. Fasting creates the hunger. These things go together, though. Fasting creates the hunger. Prayer and almsgiving directs that hunger. That's really significant. These go together. Fasting makes us hungry, but hunger in and of itself is not virtuous. Hunger in and of itself doesn't make us more like Christ. The hunger then is paired with prayer, which turns our lives towards the Lord so we can behold God, and it turns us in service towards others. 
And so it turns us out. And so you, you fast, but you also pray and give to others so that these go together. But it begins with fasting. If you're not hungry, you likely will not pray or serve others the way that we're invited to. And so it begins with fasting. Um, fasting has largely become self-directed. It's kind of become a choose-your-own um, story, choose-your-own-adventure when it comes to fasting. Um, and I think there are some benefits to that, for it to be highly personal to you. And yet there's also some wisdom in saying, let's not reinvent the wheel. There are ways that Christians for centuries and centuries have observed this season that we would probably do well to observe. And so um, we'll, we'll land here. There's three ways you can typically fast in Lent, or three areas of focus. Uh, you limit what you eat, you limit how much you eat, and you limit when you eat. Those are kind of the three things you need to think about. Um, what do you eat, when do you eat it, and how much do you eat? Uh, typically, fasting in the church does not mean you cease from eating all food. It's not like you just drink water all day. Uh, traditionally, fasting has meant you eat two small meals that do not equal a full meal. So you can have a little food in the morning, maybe a little food at the end of the day. Um, and so you're, you're limiting the amount of food that you eat. But then you're also limiting what you eat. You say no to specific foods. And in the past, it's usually centered around what are the foods that you would have at a feast? What foods say this is a time of feasting? Uh, meat, eggs, dairy, oil, wine. In traditional cultures, all of those signal feasting. Maybe sugar should be added to that list because for us, sugar is a, a pretty key uh, trigger that this is a, a feast, something to celebrate. Um, if that feels overwhelming and you only, only give up one, give up meat. Consider being a vegetarian for Lent. That's like a highly practical point of application, but I would encourage you to, to at least consider it because here's why. Throughout the Bible, what's the one sign of feasting? It's meat. When the father receives his son home, what does he do? He kills the fattened calf, and they throw a party. And so meat in almost every traditional culture across the world has been the sign that this is a feast. We, we totally have blown through that because we have, uh, you know, every meal we have, two-thirds of the plate is meat. And if it's not, we feel like something has gone wrong. My wife and I sometimes will order the vegetable plate at a restaurant, and it's all we order. Like, that's our meal, and, and the server will always look at us like, there's, there's still time to change your mind. Are you sure you want to do this? Um, but that's how we live culturally. We, we, if there's not a bunch of meat, we think this isn't a meal, and it's because we're always feasting. And if we don't learn to fast, don't learn to create hunger, learn to limit and direct our desires, we'll never, we'll never actually know what it means to feast. So that's briefly how much you eat and what you eat. Um, what about when? When do you do these things? When do you limit it? And again, I think there's a few ways you could consider stepping into this. At a very baseline, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are fast days. Um, in the Western church, uh, everyone's invited to fast on those two days. Um, Similarly, you could also take on fasting every Wednesday and every Friday, every Wednesday to remember uh, the betrayal of Jesus, every Friday to remember the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, you could do that for the whole of Lent, or you could take it on for the whole season and say, for six weeks, I'm going to uh, limit what I consume and how much I consume, except on Sundays. Sundays are always a feast day. Um, and so you could, you could really think that through. But all of this, all of this is meant to be a gift. It's meant to be a way that we see how imbalanced our lives are and yet awaken in us a desire to see God, um, awaken in us 
a longing to behold Jesus. And so that's, that's the gift of Lent. That's why Lent should be received as a gift and not as a burden. It's not like uh, you realize Lent is coming and you think, oh no, you know, the next six weeks are gonna be terrible. No, the next six weeks would be profoundly transformative in your life with Christ. And so I would encourage you to not miss the invitation of Lent. So uh, with that, we'll stop there. And why don't you stand and we'll affirm our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed.